Pastor David has asked that I would uh, read our sermon text this morning. So if you have your copy of God's word, I encourage you to open with me to Psalm 34. Hear the word of the Lord. I will bless the Lord all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O Lord, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from the evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Jeff, I think you misheard. I asked you to do the sermon, too. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as has already been prayed, it is, it is so hard to come before you here in your word in a way that really and truly honors how awesome you are. There are many things that we bring with us into this service of worship, and there will be many things that we will continue to carry with us when we leave here. And when we go back to engaging in our vocations, in our relationships, things that we will continue to carry with us even as we attempt to live a life of obedience and faith with you. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would magnify yourself to us today so that we would, in response see you 
and taste you and be moved by you, that we would experience you in such a way that we would magnify you to ourselves and to our neighbors for the rest of our lives. And so speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon this morning is The Christian Life, Experiencing, Expressing, Embodying. And and I'm going to tell you what my goal here is. I normally don't do that. I normally kind of leave it out there and see if you come up with it on your own. But here's my goal. My goal is this. I want at the end of the sermon for you to go, well, duh. And I'm dead serious. I don't want there to be anything here in this sermon that is supposed to be new or fresh or, in, or anything like that. What I want to do to, with, with you today is take Psalm 34 and unfold it for us in such a way that we are reminded of the most basic idea of what the Christian life is so that we can in, in, you know, live out what that calling is because it's so easy to get distracted by so many different things. Peter, as I have said before, is taking Psalm 38 and he has referenced it in 1 Peter 2.2 where, where he has, or 2.3 in connection to 2.2, uh, where we are to crave the pure spiritual milk of the word because, you know, we are newborn babes who have tasted of God's goodness. And last week we looked at his, uh, his citation of Psalm 34 in chapter 3, uh, where I noted that if you, would, if you want to take what Peter is saying with regards to the ethics of the Christian life or how to live out that Christian life, he is taking Psalm 34 and he has connected it with Isaiah 53 and he is presenting it to you and to me as those who live after the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ to say, here's who Christ is, here's what Christ did, Here's who you are, and so here's what you are to do. And he's not just citing, or he's not just referencing Psalm 34. He's not just citing Psalm 34. He is taking Psalm 34 and the logic of Psalm 34, and he's saying, because of Christ, here is how this logic now plays out in your life. It is amazing um, when you look at the Greek translation of the psalm and compare it to the Greek text of Peter's letter, he is not hiding what he's doing. And so I want us to look at Psalm 34 in the big picture so that we can really uh, sink our teeth into what Peter, why Peter is using this and what he is trying to encourage us and exhort us to embrace and, and to do because of these things. Because the Christian life, there is nothing more central than living the Christian life if you are a professing Christian. And it's not one aspect of your life. It's not a priority in your life. It is your life. And everything comes off of that. All of your priorities come from that. The way that you live comes from that. It's not part of it. It comes out of it. 
And there's not one part of your life that is not to come out of who you are in Christ. That's just the way God has designed it. We live in a culture that doesn't value that. We live in a culture that now is pressing us to not do that. If you have paid any attention, which I have not really, other than seeing some headlines, um, but even just through the headlines, if you've paid any attention to what has gone on uh, in the confirmation hearings, you will know that this identification of, of this potential jurist has been a stumbling block. Not even specific things that have been done that can be pointed to, but just the mere fact that it is such an identity that as was said several years ago, the dogma truly does live deeply. Or I forget the specific quote. I'm telling you I don't pay attention for my own sanity. There's a lot of pressure. There are a lot of pressure facing the Christians to whom Peter is writing. We are now beginning to experience a lot of pressure that you and I have not experienced in our lifetimes. For the younger people here, I would encourage you to speak to some of our more seasoned members and hear what it was like for them growing up, especially with regards to the Christian faith. You will be amazed at the differences between what they experienced and what we are experiencing right now and more than likely what you will be experiencing in the future. And so especially for our young people, it is absolutely essential for you that you really uh, embrace what it means uh, to profess faith in Jesus Christ and to, um, to be a follower of Jesus. It's not simply that in professing faith in Jesus, you get a ticket to heaven. It is not simply that in embracing Jesus Christ that, yes, you'll, you'll have the sweet by and by whenever that comes, and until then, you're just kind of on your own trying to, to do things you know, as well as you can and to prioritize, thing, prioritize things well and all that. Jesus tells us that eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life. When we say, if you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, if you bow your knee to him as Lord, if you repent of your sins and embrace his righteousness on your behalf, however you want to say it, dare I even say, if you invite Jesus into your heart, however you want to express it, when you give yourself to God in response to that quickening of his spirit with, within your heart, he grants you eternal life. And that's not something that you're waiting for. It's something you have now because Jesus says it is knowing God. But yet James tells us that the demons know that God is one. Just like people who profess to believe in God know that God is one. That, that even demons believe 
and they shudder. Surely there is something to this knowing God that has to go beyond information. Now, it certainly must include information, but it cannot be summed up by the intellect, by academics, by propositional truth standing on its own. That to be a professing believer is not simply that you can check off the right boxes of, yes, I believe this statement and this statement and this statement and this statement. We have those statements because they're helpful for us in expressing our faith, but knowing Jesus, knowing God, having eternal life is not summed up by being able to check the box. Jonathan Edwards, in his work, The Religious Affection, says there is a distinction to be made between a mere notional understanding, wherein the mind only beholds things in the exercise of a speculative faculty, versus beholding things in the sense of the heart wherein the mind relishes and feels. He says spiritual understanding primarily consists in this sensing or tasting of the moral beauty of divine things. Listen to these words you know, by the academic theologian. Beauty of holiness, sweetness of holiness, Moral perfections of God, God's glory, sweetness, relishing, smelling, tasting. This is what the psalmist in Psalm 34 is setting before us as as Psalm 34 verse 8 is the center idea in this psalm. I have tasted and so now I'm calling you to taste. He has experienced something with God. He has not just sat in a room and read scripture and said, okay, well, here are the truth statements. And now because of that, here's what I'll do. Here's, what, here's how I'll live. There certainly is part of that. But here within the psalm, very specifically, what he is saying is that this truth that I know is in scripture I have experienced it in such a way that it personally affected me. These are not always words that we use in confessional Presbyterianism. That the Christian life is a life lived experiencing God. We love to say that it is to know God. But what do we mean when we say To know God. The psalmist tells us to know God is to taste Him. These are what Jonathan Edwards would say are sensible. This is a sensible way of knowing or what might even be expressed as a sensual way of knowing. It's not merely intellect. It includes the intellect. We don't want to run to the opposite extreme and say, well, experiencing God means I've got to shut my mind off and just kind of, you know, experience something crazy. But it certainly means that knowing God cannot be summarized well 
by simply the notional knowledge that we can have. Beloved, one of my favorite things to do when I am studying the scripture is I like to read what the liberal scholars say about the word of God. Because quite often, even though they don't believe it is the word of God, even though they don't believe there's any power in it, even though they don't believe there's any life in it, even though they don't believe there's anything transcendent in it, they do a much better job of actually reading the text and making comments on the text that they don't even believe. There is a way of reading the text of Scripture and being able to, to pull out the, the truth content that is there without believing it and without allowing it to change you. What we are called to, the psalmist tells us here, is to experience God. David here tells us, and there's an inscription at the beginning of the psalm um, that, that Jeff didn't read, and I'm kind of glad he didn't, um, because we don't know if the inscription is actually part of Scripture or if it's not. There are good arguments to be made on both sides of that. But the, in the inscription, there is this historical setting for the psalm that is given where we are told that this psalm that David is writing is in response to an experience of God that he had within his life. And so this first word that we're going to look at here in the psalm is this first word that I want you to just be willing to, to maybe trust is the first word of your faith, and that is experience. Experience God. Not just learn about God. You have to learn about God. But the learning about has to go to something beyond, to an actual experience of the God that you're learning. Experience God. David experienced God as David was on the run. David was being pursued by Saul because Saul was jealous. And so Saul was trying to kill David. David was on the run. The inscription, interestingly enough, it says, it, it says that this is a, at a time when David uh, was before King Abimelech um, and pretended to be crazy in order to escape. And um, what's interesting is if you look at 1 Samuel 21, which is the historical record of that event, you'll see that, well, the king's name isn't Abimelech. The king's name is Achish. And so it's created a lot, a lot of interesting, well, what, what do we do with this? Well, if you look a few verses before that, you'll see that David first has an encounter with the priest Ahimelech at the tabernacle. And what David does is he goes to the tabernacle because he's on the run from King Saul. And because he's on the run, he is fearful, he is struggling, he hasn't eaten, and so he's talking to the priest, and this is that, that place where the priest Ahimelech gives David showbread that was in the, in the holy place within the tabernacle. And so David encounters God at the tabernacle through the bread that he eats. 
and that provision that the Lord you know, gives to him in that moment. And following that, he says, by the way, you got any weapons here? It might be helpful for me since I'm on the run if I have you know, something for protection. And, and what do they have? What, what, do the, what does the priest have at the tabernacle? The sword that was taken from Goliath when David defeated him. And David goes, well, there aren't many like that one. Yeah, I'll take that. That's pretty good. And so the Lord, he encounters the Lord at the tabernacle in something that seems rather common and ordinary. Food and a sword. Provision and protection. And he leaves that to go uh, and he ends up in Gath. And while he is there, the Philistines, they figure out, hold up, isn't this David? Isn't this the one that, that has slain the tens of thousands? And so they start to pursue him too. They're going to go after him. And so David acts crazy. Even lets spit on his beard. Ask Jeff about that later. And what happens? The king's like, well, why would you bring this crazy guy into my place? You know, get rid of him. And so David escapes. Now, in both of these occasions, there, there doesn't seem to be anything supernatural. There doesn't seem to be anything that's just remarkable. There doesn't seem to be anything going on here that isn't everyday providence that you and I experience all the time. But yet, how does David respond? I have experienced the Lord. Here is what he did for me. And so here is, going to, is what my life will look, at, look like for the rest of my existence. He has shown himself to me. He has appeared to me. He has listened to me. I sought the Lord. I feared the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He heard me. He answered me. He delivered me. He saved me. He encamps around me. Do you see this? It's a normal, everyday providence that leads to such praise where he, his response is, I am going to live a life in which I am characterized by praise. Praise will constantly be in my mouth. I am going to magnify and exalt the Lord. Not because of something supernaturally awesome. Because he had food to eat. Because he was protected. Beloved, how often do we eat don't look at me. That's not like an actual question. But how often do we eat where we sit down and what we do is we just put one mouthful after another thinking about Seinfeld or that's, that's what I do or some kind of concern that you have or this other thing going on. How many times do you sit there and you eat in a distracted fashion where the food before you is just food for you to put in your mouth rather than for it to be a tasting of the goodness 
of the presence of God. It is so easy to check out where our profession of faith becomes a maintenance of right doctrine. And look, it needs to include maintenance of right doctrine. But if you can profess the Westminster Confession of Faith, but then eat absent-mindedly, not being overwhelmed that God has met you in the provision of this food, where you get to go to sleep with a roof over your head, where many of us have locked doors with lots of locks, where we go to sleep at night not really fearing what's going to happen. We go to sleep at night not really fearing who's going to come knocking down my door because I have professed faith in Jesus Christ. If you look at our prayer list, um, we include a, a section there for the persecuted church. And there's a list that has been put together by Open Doors Ministry where they have like the top 50. And so we, I pick one a week so that we can pray through the persecuted church in a year. And one of the things that you will see consistently for the churches that live in predominantly Muslim areas is that people who profess faith in Jesus Christ do not get to eat and sleep peacefully. Especially the women who convert to Jesus Christ. They live in a home that is dominated by a man who is told by his culture that she has shamed him and that he has every right to uphold the family's good name by beating her, mocking her, withholding the things that she needs, in these shame-based cultures, even killing. Honor killings. There's an actual phrase, honor killing, right? That is not your experience. That is not my experience. And rather than do what I do, which is take it for granted, what David does is he embraces this as this amazing provision and protection from God in such a way that he describes it as, I have experienced God. There is no doubt that the truth of what David says here matches up with the truth that David would know because David had a copy of Torah for himself. All right, that was one of the requirements of the king. And he read the Torah, right? We know that he would read it uh, during the day. We know that he would read it when he slept on his bed at night. How many psalms include that? There is no doubt that there is truth here forming and shaping the way that David is interacting with his experience of God. But make no mistake, what he recounts here is the experience. And that experience of God, by necessity, overflows for him into expression, expressing God. And so that second word that we see in terms of the way the psalm is unfolding is that word expressing. Experiencing and expressing. Experiencing, taking in something from God 
and then expressing that back out very specifically here in terms of words of worship. But also, he says, in a soul that makes its boast in the Lord. That soul here is that, that most core part of who he is. He is purposefully attempting to align with the greatness of his God who is near. So that whether it is in the experience of God, in the expression of God, notice these words that he uses. Blessing, praising continually, making its boast, magnifying and exalting. Now look, there are two ways to magnify something, right? You take a magnifying glass and you take something that's real small and hard to see and you blow it up, you make it bigger so that you can actually see it. That's not what is meant here. This is a magnification where something that is huge and it's so big that it's hard for you to really get a grasp of it, you magnify it in so, such a way so that you can see what it truly is. All of us, or I think in this room, can go outside this evening and look up and see the moon. But we can't really see it for what it is unless it's magnified to us where we can see the craters and where we can see the different elevation changes and we can see how it's not just a big round thing of cheese, right? Like in the Bugs Bunny cartoons. It's magnified. And that's what David is talking about. I'm taking something that is huge, and that's God himself, and what I'm trying to do is through my expression of, of being satisfied with him, I am drawing attention to myself, or for myself, I'm drawing attention for those around me that they too would look and take in just how awesome he is. Praise here is worship, but praise here is also evangelism. When you and I get together and we sit around together and praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done, it is worship. When you are talking to a coworker or a family member or someone off the street that you don't know that's not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're telling him, here's what God has done for me. This is who God is for me. This is what God has done in history. This is what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And it's awesome. And the reason that you are struggling with the things you are struggling with is because you are fighting against this amazing stuff that he's done for you. That's evangelism. That's you sharing, once again, your experience of God in order to draw someone else into that. You will only do that if your interaction with God is an interaction that is defined by tasting, relishing, enjoying, experiencing. Not just, I know all the right stuff, so now I'll go out and elucidate everybody. What's one of the most common objections that you will hear to, have you shared your faith with somebody? I'll tell you the, one, the most common one I hear all the time. What if I don't know how to answer one of their questions? Then you don't know how to answer the question. But what you do know how to do is say, who, this is who God is. 
in what he has done for me. You don't have to know all the answers to draw other people's attention to how awesome he is. But your life, if it doesn't reflect in your life how awesome he is, there is no way that you will magnify that awesomeness to somebody else. And what the psalmist tells us there is the way we do this is by having souls that make their boast in him. That we are so characterized by our experience, our tasting, and our relishing that it just comes out. Experiencing, expressing, and the last one is embodying. Now, we dealt a lot of, of this last week, so I'm not going to deal with it a second time. But the way the psalm breaks down is that the first ten verses are basically like a hymn of thanksgiving. And then from 11 to the end, what you have is it's like a second, it's almost like a second psalm because its genre completely changes. And the genre now is, now is a psalm of wisdom. What some have said is that this is almost like a worship service. The first part has been worship. Uh, the second part is now a sermon. If your life is characterized by experiencing God, which re- re- reveals the experience in expressing that, then what will happen is your life, especially here as pictured in the tongue, it will embody, it will enflesh the experiences that you have been expressing. Meaning, yes, it's going to come out in words, but it will not only come out in words. It will be lived. It will be seen. People can see it. As Peter will say, uh, when we get to it in just a few verses in chapter 3, when they see the way that you endure difficulty and hardship and that you do it with hope, they're going to ask you, why? How? We experience God, and what we do is we reinforce and magnify that experience to ourselves and to those around us so that it will lead us to living lives that match our expressions. Visual for people to see, not just people to hear. And beloved, if you will pursue that ordinary life of being enamored with God because of his daily provisions and protections. You will be able to give thanks for him in all things. And your life will not be characterized by doubt or by fear or by want. Your face will radiate God's presence. Beloved, this is Christianity 101. This is the Christian life 101. And I hope that you never go beyond 101. Because this is what it means. As Peter is telling us, what it means for us to have experienced God by being reborn in Jesus Christ. 
as those who are new infants in Jesus Christ because we have been born again in his resurrection. We are a people who experience the life of God dwelling within us through union with Christ, where our experience of God is not only the daily provisions and protections that he provides, but it's the very life of God dwelling in the souls of men, as Peter will say in 2 Peter. And that is your experience. And that is the experience to which Peter is saying. So embrace that experience and then cultivate that experience in the way that just as the psalmist says, I feared the Lord and here's what happened. Peter says in chapter 117 and 18, because of what God has done for you in Christ, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord because of the provisions and deliverance of the Lord. Take refuge in the Lord, he says. He says that in the psalm that those who do this, they they will never be ashamed. And he says in chapter 2 that those who embrace Christ are those who will never be ashamed. David's experience results in blessing and Peter's experience tells us that our lives are to reflect that blessing. Deliverance led to the removal of shame. Deliverance from shame provides courage in 1 Peter. Beloved, God cares about the suffering of his people and he brings us not out of those troubles, but through them. As David tells us that the Lord encamps around us, his eyes watch over us, his ears listen to us, he redeems us. And what it means to be redeemed here, he says, it's, it's like the psalmist who is redeemed without having his legs broken. Anybody else get excited about, excited about that? Is that just me? David, the Messiah, the king, is delivered in such a way that his legs are not broken. You ever wondered why in the account of John 19 when they say that because the Sabbath was coming that the normal practice was to go ahead and make sure the people on the cross were dead before sundown so that the practice, common practice was to go around and break the legs. And it says they came to Jesus to break his legs, but they realized they didn't need to because he was already dead. There is no greater experience of these things of God than what Jesus himself experienced as he entrusted himself to his Father, went through the trials and distress of his incarnation and his earthly ministry, had our sin put upon him on the cross, and the Lord redeemed him through it all. And how do we know? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And you and I, beloved, have received the new birth of that resurrection in him. David's legs were not broken in the midst of his deliverance, but even greater yet, David's greater son. In fulfilling the scriptures, 
has provided, that ultimate salvation that he has experienced from his Father. And by nature of our union, he draws us to experience what he experiences. And so what does this mean for us? Well, it means this. I encourage you to embrace and interact with your daily experiences completely differently and allow the imagination of your faith to tie what you are experiencing in those moments into the Lord who is encamped around you and giving himself to you. That don't allow our modern worldview, our scientific worldview, to change what the scripture says about what is true and what is real. And that, that we live in a spiritual existence that goes beyond and transcends what we can touch, smell, and taste. And yet the Lord gives us himself to us in ways that we can taste and see that he is good. And so don't allow the way you view and experience your life to be dictated by science. That doesn't mean reject science. It doesn't mean that we're not scientific, blah, 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 blah. But don't allow your worldview to be defined by science. And then allow the imagination of your faith to really experience the Lord in these daily ways that he gives himself to you. And then do this. Rehearse those blessings to yourself over and over and over and over. You see, the next time that I say, how have you experienced God recently? I want an immediate answer. I don't want humming and hoeing and, okay, I got to think of something really huge. I got to think of something real big. I got to think of the supernatural thing. I don't know how many times I talk to someone and say, you know, what has the Lord done for you? And it's like deer in headlights. I know part of it is because they don't expect the question. Sorry. But I think also a lot of it is we don't really rehearse these things to ourselves. We experience them, and then we move past them. We don't rehearse them. We don't magnify them to ourselves. And so experience your life differently this week and magnify those differences to yourself so that you are cultivating a life whose boast is in the Lord. And then this, I want you to try this this week. I want you to do what David does here. And as a result of magnifying God's goodness to you that you are tasting on a daily basis, I want you to risk something for Christ this week. I want you, because your, your soul is making its boast in the Lord, to step out and try something for Jesus because of faith. And I don't know what that needs to be for you. It might be praying differently. It might be inviting someone to pray with you. It might be talking to a coworker about the hope of Christ. It might be changing the way that you interact on Facebook. It may be doing what I do and have quit Facebook. (laughs) 
for a time. I don't know. But if you really want to taste and see that the Lord is good, what you have experienced and what you have expressed, it absolutely has to be put into practice. And so try something. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are so good to us, even though we so often miss it or take it for granted or misinterpret or however many other different ways that we somehow, Lord, end up living secular lives as professing believers in Jesus Christ. It is absolutely vital to you that we feel, think, and act in a way that makes you look as great as you are. And so I pray that we would do that with ourselves when we look in the mirror, because I know that there are people here, Lord, that are struggling and wrestling with some very deep issues. Misplaced guilt, misplaced shame, And Lord, if they cannot magnify you to themselves, how can they magnify you to their neighbor? Lord, I also pray that you would lead us to magnify your greatness to those around us. It has become so easy to complain and to grumble. It has, as Jeff said, there there are very difficult times. And our faith has been tried. And it has been easy, Lord, to respond to spiritual realities as if they were scientific realities. Responding to our fears and our anger and our bitterness because of, we think, we think because of a virus when it's because of sin in our hearts. And so, Lord, indeed, magnify to yourself to us in such a way that we would risk the vulnerability of entrusting ourselves to you and that we would attempt great things in your name so that your glory indeed may spread throughout this earth. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.